how does one go about rebranding something that the public has radically misunderstood um, for a good cause, right? And so I think about this a lot vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear energy industry. We completely ceded, almost completely ceded the entire polysilicon market to China. Our political class, a collection of people who have benefited the most from and yet know the least about the hard work that goes on in the space, i.e. energy continues to do its level best to impede and reverse the development of our domestic energy bounty, and here's the killer line, naively assuming they could jackhammer away at the foundation of the tower they sit atop and somehow be immune from the consequences of its collapse. Absolutely. Like, they'll all just show up in your front lawn someday and you won't know why they're there. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. And I'm genuinely really excited because today I'm bringing you an interview with Doomberg T. Doomberg is a little green floating chicken who has uh, been bouncing around Twitter lately. And he's also the author, or I should say uh, their team is the author, of the number two financial newsletter on Substack right now, with the same name, the Doomberg Newsletter. They're an incredibly unique group because... At the same time, they have all of the traits that I normally look for in a guest on this podcast. Unique ideas, data-based observations, clear, concise messaging, but also an incredibly fun and easy-to-engage-with atmosphere. It's not every day that I see the two come together, and really, it's a fun journey for both of us. As always, if you like the show, and I really do think you'll like this one, tell a friend, share on social media, or just let them know in person. You'd never know, or never guess, how far that would go. Well, I don't really have anything more to say. Short intro, but wonderful, wonderful show. Here's Doomberg T. So, Doomberg, you run, uh, you run a Substack, you run a very popular Twitter account, and your bio says, you, it says, uh, totally agree doesn't mean what you think it does. Yes. So what does totally agree mean? Uh, totally agree is the standard response we have to trolls on Twitter. Um, and um, so somebody will get into uh, you know, one of our feeds, especially like say when we, we publish a piece, uh, I don't know, about Bitcoin or something like that. And, and they don't like what we wrote and they'll, or perhaps didn't even read what we wrote, but assumed um, what we wrote would be something they didn't like. And they'll write a scathing review or leave a nasty comment. And um, our standard reply to such trolls is totally agree. Um, make, you know, makes perfect sense. It's a, it's, you know, Twitter is a um, fantastic time, uh, town square. It's vibrant. It's, it's, you know, information is real time and unfiltered, which is its strength and its weakness, but it's also a, a toxic cesspool of <laughs> trolls, bots, and um, you know the the Twitter algorithm is designed to make you angry, and uh, we we have a systematic process to ensure that we never get angry on Twitter. Um, so far, so good. We've mostly not gotten angry on Twitter, um, and uh, totally agree is just our way of diffusing um, diffusing a troll attack. Just, yeah, hundred percent, totally agree. <laughs> uh, so um, if you search totally agree from Doomberg T on Twitter, uh, you will find a humorous uh, array of 
trollish uh, tweets directed our way to which we respond um, with that phrase. And so it's just a fun way to navigate Twitter. Um, little inside joke here at the office, you know, we're a very small team and we're running this entire Doomer project um, in-house. And we, uh, when, uh, when such a troll uh, materializes in our feed, we often debate whether they're worthy of a totally agree or just a simple ignore. Yeah, I think something about Doomberg that really stands out to me is simultaneously you guys have so much value and unique information to add, but I don't know how much of your popularity is due to that or due to really this kind of mastery of aesthetics and kind of vibes that I get. So maybe you can answer that even better than I can. Uh, what what part of branding is about having that kind of unique information uh, that alpha, as some people put it, or how much of it is about really being able to communicate and having that kind of style aspect? So it's a total product. Um, there's there's We've talked about this several times and written about it. There's five pillars to any business. And Brand is one of those pillars. Um, we think a lot about brand. We consult on brand in our day jobs. Um, our consulting business um, is oriented around improving the operations of companies or helping people analyze potential investment opportunities by casting the uh, casting the information through the lens of what we call the five pillars. Um, Brand is a fascinating concept and most people get it wrong. There's very, very few good books on brand. Most of them are just filled with empty platitudes uh, and pretty pictures. Uh, brand is, is, um, is a gut feeling that you induce in your ideal clients as they interact with your product. Um, and so before you can build a brand, you have to have a profile of who your ideal clients are. And, and we've done that. We, we have character sketches for for what we think our ideal clients would be. Um, and then once you've identified who your ideal clients are, the next question is what is the gut feeling you wish to induce in them as they interact with your product? And for Doomberg, um, our brand ambition is that when an email from Doomberg hits your inbox, the gut feeling we induce in you is, ooh, I get to read that. Um, and if you do that well, um, and you execute it well, then you can, and if of enough people say that, then you can say that you have a brand. Um, and in order to induce the gut feeling of, ooh, I get to read that, our um, brand ambition has got three sub-objectives. One, um, we shall be funny without being silly. Two, we shall uh, be provocative without being polarizing. And three, we shall teach without being self-indulgent. Mm. Uh, if we do those three things, uh, and it, and and that brand ambition um, manifests itself in our writing, in the editing. You know, hey, is this line provocative or is it or is it polarizing? And is that subtle joke funny or is it silly? Um, and are, are you being a little self indulgent here? Is there a tighter way that we could uh, relay this information that might be new to the audience without making it seem like, you know, um, you're Mister Know It All? And so. Um, that is how we attacked the Doomberg project. Um, and uh, we we were cautioned um, when we started this project by some people in the space, the newsletter business, that we would not be successful unless we gave specific stock picks. Um, and we, we thought that was untrue. We thought that um, 
there's plenty of stock picking newsletters out there that it's a crowded space. Um, we, we hypothesized that our ideal clients wanted to learn something, uh, wanted to be entertained and wanted to enjoy good writing. And to the extent that anything we write or teach might be an input into their own personal investing process, um, our ideal clients don't need somebody to hold their hands and tell them what to buy and what their entry point should be. Um, and so we, we modeled ourselves, um, you know, in that way and, um, and set about the task of, of executing our business plan across all five pillars, not just brand. And then critically layered on top of that is a mindset of continuous improvement, authentic continuous improvement, where we use data and analytics and feedback from our ideal clients um, to keep making the product better. And just so, a quick answer from for the audience. Uh, what are the five pillars besides brand? Yeah, uh, brand, um, technology, uh, channel, uh, demand creation, and operations. Um, and I could give you a one sentence summary of, of all five of those if, if you would be interested. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, brand is the gut feeling you induce in your ideal clients as they interact with your product. Um, channel is the corridor in which you bump into people who are authorized to pay you. Um, technology is, as you might expect, um, all of the skills and digital or analog that you need to uh, execute your plan, the other four pillars. Um, uh, demand creation is is literally the marketing and selling of your product. Um, and then operations is everything that goes into the production of your product. And so, for example, for every Doomberg piece, we have a 25-point checklist. Um, What's the concept? What are we teaching? What's the title? What's the opening quote? What's the opening story? Um, what are the charts? Uh, what are the what are the photoshops? Um, first edit, first draft, first edit, second draft, second edit. You know, um, check all the pronouns. Make sure there's no typos. Um, you know, we have a, a systematic plan to produce all of these pieces with discipline. And if it's not ready, we don't publish it. Um, mm. And so we have a plan across all five pillars. Um, we've been open and authentic with our readers that we intended to make Doomberg a business from the start. Um, it is the work of our lives. Um, and it's an enormous, what a gift that um, we get to play all day and can make a living doing it because it's not work for us to producing these pieces and creating content for Twitter and um, editing the pieces and doing the Photoshop. So we do it everything in house um, and it's fun. It's it's literally the work of our lives, and and I think that comes through. And so the the reasons why people seem to like the product, um, I don't think, you know, the the alpha quote unquote as you referenced it, is, I mean, I guess it's it's there. It's necessary, but it's nowhere near sufficient. Um, I think people enjoy the entertainment value and the and the learning and the and the fun we're having with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely enjoy it, and. Uh... I know you talk a lot about the downturn, economic downturn, as well as commodity prices, supply chain crash, uh, and we'll get to all of that eventually. But before we talk about the kind of uh, the kind of macro effects, what's it been like for you? Has has there been a has there been a bit of a downturn internally? Has there been a, actually an uptick because your your skills are more relevant than ever, or uh, just how has it been like? Um, our you know if we bifurcate our life into our Consulting business and now Doomberg. Um, the consulting business is fine. In fact, we we've um, fully recovered from the challenges that we experienced, like everybody, uh, from the COVID crash. Um, you know, we had a very good business pre-COVID. COVID crushed a lot of our client base, um, and and we had to reinvent ourselves. At I think we had a drawdown of 
80 to 85% in revenue from peak to trough in a very short period of time. Oh and, my. Um, and that's, you know, as we like to say, that was a high pucker factor. Um, and, um, and, uh, it, um, you know, it, it, it caused us to reinvent ourselves. And one of the things we did to reinvent ourselves was we developed a vertical for our consulting business, um, that involved helping content creators who serve wall street, uh, run their businesses better. And so, um, by developing that product and marketing it and executing it and, um, getting clients and helping them improve and learning, you know, always learning, um, the genesis of, of Doomberg was born and we were encouraged by some of our clients to start Doomberg, not the least of which, um, uh, because we would follow all our own advice. You know, when you, when you're in the consulting business, sometimes your clients only listen to part of what you say, um, <clears throat> for their own reasons. And, um, and so, uh, with their support and help, we did it. And, um, and so economically, yeah, Doomberg has been a, a grill, you know, it, it succeeded beyond all of our wildest imaginations. And, um, and so now we're in a position where we can select what business we accept. Um, if we accept any at all, because um, Doomberg is, you know, our objective is to is to make a living doing only what we love. It's not necessarily to make the most amount of money possible, um, and that's a quite a liberating mindset. And I would say that we're especially grateful for the fact that we've been able to achieve what I, we, what we've called personal sovereignty. Um, we 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 yeah, you have a lot of control, and I know you've talked about this on other podcasts, yeah. but just talk about like. Just talk about the kind of freedom that you have, what you basically do, and uh, and, and maybe a good entry point to this is that you've said that you you don't take scheduled meetings, right? Yeah. So this is a key thing. Um, prior even prior to Doomberg, um, we 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 try to live a life where we optimize around a, a ratio of what we call um, get to do divided by have to do. Um, and you know the point of life is to live, and um, the point of money is to enable an easier living. Um, money is not some scorecard to be continuously optimized. It is a tool to abate risk and to um, to to secure happiness. Um, money alone can't make you happy, but um, having been poor and now being relatively well off, I can assure you that one is better than the other. Um, <laughs> And so, um, I think I say I have a similar experience. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, yeah, it's one of the things we struggle with. I mean, I certainly struggle with as a parent is how do you sort of impart the motor in your children without having them go through the hardships that you did? Because as a parent, you know, you, you always struggle with that. Um, and so, um, the, the, the no scheduled meeting things is, is actually, we've never had a client complain about it. In fact, they like it. And so it only, it works because we are continuously and totally available to them 24 seven. Twitter, Slack, text, email, or phone, we're incredibly responsive. We can be incredibly responsive because we have no scheduled meetings. And it turns out that um, 90% of meetings are worthless. And then of the 10% of meetings that are worthy, 90% of the time is wasted. And so the the drag factor on meetings is like 99%. Um, it's true. Like I, we spent, I personally spent decades in industry, um, one of the reasons I left industry is just how much non-productive work. In fact, when we first started our firm, we, we, we started on the following theory. Um, we created all of our value in corporate America in 20% of our time. 
and the other 80% of our time was wasted. And let's just imagine that um, our company was paying us 100 units of value, you know, um, total compensation for, for the work we were producing. Um, we made a bet on ourselves that we could market that 20% five times over and charge, you know, a 40 units of value for it and make more money on our own than we were making with our healthy jobs uh, in corporate America doing only what we love. Um, and so and it looks like you guys succeeded. Um, yeah, that the, we succeeded in the firm. And then, of course, Doomberg grew out of that collective set of experiences. And now um, our plan is kind of in the long run to put the consulting firm on runoff, keep only the clients we really love. Um, and we've turned away clients, of course, to focus on Doomberg, because one of the things that you learn when you have no scheduled meetings is you realize just how precious your time is, how productive you can be when nobody is wasting your time. Um, literally phone calls with clients might, might last two or three minutes. Like they understand that they're going to call with a specific question. They're going to get a specific answer. And if they need follow-up, we'll do the follow-up offline and call them with the two minute version of the answer. When we figure it out, um, there's no need, like we don't feel the need to be on people's calendars as a measure of our importance. Um, we charge for value and, and, um, that's that. And it's really a magical thing. So by doing so. You get to spend an enormous amount of time reading, learning, canvassing information, distilling complexity, connecting dots. And every time we write one of these pieces, the researching part of it, the writing part of it, the editing part of it, and then the comment cycle makes us smarter, makes us more knowledgeable about a different set of topics. And then people reach out to us with ideas and with feedback and, hey, I, I, I'm an expert in this area and you got nine out of 10 right, but here's the one thing you got wrong, uh, which is great. So it's ideal. So then you become sort of the center of this node. Um, and, and every time we tackle a new area, um, usually an area that we have some pre-existing knowledge in, but we want to learn about, um, we bring the audience along with us in that journey. And so every time we write a piece, we get better. And so it just feeds on itself. And um, it is the work of our lives. It's certainly the work of my life. And it's a gift. Like I say that there's not a day that goes by that we are not extraordinarily grateful for having figured out what it is that we were meant to do. Yeah, it does sound like really a good life. And, Great life. <laughs> and something that I've really thought about, especially continuing my journey into the kind of like online writing arena, is that I really do want to have a way of verifying what I think and what I predict with reality, how I reason about the world. I want to have something basically happening in parallel and that's not really related to my ability to maintain an audience. Uh, and the question I want to ask you related to this is, do you think that uh, that the work you do in consulting uh, benefits your benefits your newsletter, the kind of understanding the skills you apply and so on? Uh, is, is that something that uh, is highly correlated, loosely correlated, or is it just something that that is not too related at all? <laughs> well, you're the you know, you're the integral of your life's experiences. And um, our team is consist you know it consists of people that have had pretty interesting and varied background and experiences and the synergy of it together is what makes it work um i i'm a scientist by training i spent decades in heavy industry um in, in the commodity sector i have a very keen understanding of the molecular map of the world and how the economy flows um have some background in venture capital and private investing um 
Yeah, wait, what were you doing in industry? Like, I, I, I think I want my audience is the type of people who would like to know this, right? Like, what yeah, is the I, kind of what is the kind of like tasks? What's like yeah, a project you were working I, on? I was a scientist and eventually became sort of an executive that led um, large teams um, and um, both in technology and then on the business side and back and forth um, as one does if if a corporation can, deems you, uh, you know, to have some potential. Um, and so, yeah, we've worked on all manner of, of technologies, you know, that there's a difference between um, invention and, and innovation, uh, which most people don't, don't quite understand. So it, um, innovation is the reduction of an invention to practice. I see. Um, and so um, the, a lot of the credit goes to the inventor, uh, but in reality, an invention is nothing more than, you know, a thought or a demonstration project um, until a group of people come into the project and make it work right so you're um, you're doing that kind of execution side right uh, and also some inventing um Mm. but um you know there's various parts of technology where you know firms focus on inventing and then you know the the more you de-risk a project the more valuable it is but the more expensive it is to de-risk a project right and so um yeah a lot of experience in global energy um in the real world in bureaucracy, which is something I know yes. you're very interested in. One of the reasons we left was because of the bureaucracy. You know, we're a very small team and uh, we are full, fully deployed, as you can imagine, doing, we're pumping out eight pieces a month, you know, um, and each piece is researched. It's, you know, it's, it's edited, it's written, it's photoshopped, it's all done in-house. Our technology plan involves mastering our Bloomberg terminal, but becoming better Photoshoppers. Um, understanding how to, you know, do A, B, C, D for the business. Um, and we have a plan and we have goals and um, and we execute against those goals. And so, um, but yeah, our, our team is, is, you know, we have some private equity background on our team. Um, we have um, corporate finance background on our team, venture capital, um, real nice mix. We're, of us, we think of ourselves as a small think tank. Our clients pay us to pick apart and decompress and put back together problems in unique ways. And so they don't come to us for um, sort of simple problems that the problems we work on for our clients tend to be very hard, very intractable. Um, and um, we, we excel in distilling complexity, communicating the distillation of that complexity in language that is accessible, but also coming up with new ways of thinking about problems that, that aren't always right, but at least they're new. Um, and um, and so yeah, that, that's that that was what we did before. But our goal long term, and we have more than surpassed um, any objectives that we might have had when starting this. That we were in a position now where Doomberg could be, and probably soon will be, virtually the only thing we do. Yeah, that's the miracle of the internet, man. Uh, so something that I maybe wanted to ask you at the end, but I think is a good time to ask now is let's let's say that you're a you're you're a hypothetical uh, machine learning engineer. So you have like a ton of, ton of like math skills and contacts of like similar similar people, right? Uh, and and you wanted to put together a consulting company. Uh, mm-hmm. you, that's the kind of life you want to live. Okay, and I'm not asking you to kind of like give away the secret sauce here. Share only what you're comfortable with sharing. But like, what what would you need to know to kind of go on a kind of Doomberg like uh, life trajectory? So the consulting firm or the content creator part. It sounds like you want to go on the consulting side. Um, yes. Yeah, consulting is um, it's a tough business, and um, the toughest part of the business is client acquisition. Um, 
And then once you have a client, if you deliver for them early and in a way that makes it feel like you're your retainer, we ran a retainer model, um, that your retainer is kind of house money, um, then you could sort of stack those. And so anytime we got a new client, we would pour an enormous amount of time and effort in early to make it overwhelmingly valuable for them to have engaged us. Um, that doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes you can't solve the problem or sometimes personalities clash. Um, but the real uh, rate limiting step in developing a consulting business is is customer acquisition in the first place and we were um benefited by uh you know we 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 drew benefit from our pretty extensive rolodex of contacts and industry um you know our, our first few clients were companies that had tried to hire us as individuals and when they found out that we were consulting they were happy to engage our services and the nice thing about being a consultant is that you are a variable cost and so um you know, the, the companies pay you, uh, they don't have to worry about benefits and, and all that stuff. Of course, the risk, of course, is that you're variable cost. And so when something like COVID happens, you're, you're an easy thing to turn off. And in fact, we called many of our clients and let them out of their contracts because of, um, you know, if, if you're deciding between letting go a longtime employee or, or turning off a consulting contract, we understand that decision. We're in those shoes in the global financial crisis, for example. And, um, and so we thought, you know, just as an investment in karma, we would proactively oh, reach, so out, sweet. reach out to our clients and, and let them out of their contracts. And, um, and so that, that goodwill and that karma pays off over time, integrated over your life. It doesn't feel like it in the moment, of course. Um, and so, yeah, client acquisition is key. We, we have, um, you know, we live a life of, um, proactive giving, if that makes any sense. Um, the NPV of giving is infinite and, um, many people will take advantage of you. And many people will not pay it back when you need it. And that's all okay. Um, the, the MPV of giving is infinite because enough of them will um, pay back and, um, and will help you if you need it. And um, by living a life of giving with no scheduled meetings, um, a life of learning and joy, we are able to um, surf the sea of abundance, as we like to call it. And um, we could always dial for dollars if we needed to. Um, our families aren't going to go hungry, and that's a great, great privilege. So, you know, client acquisition and consulting is key. There are some some tricks and tactics that you can use, um, but um, probably save those. Yeah, we can, we can, we don't need to bore bore the audience too much. Uh, so, uh, one of the big things that you do consulting on, and that you that you talk about, and that is in the Doomberg newsletter, is uh, energy. So. Uh, one of the big statements that you've had that's really resonate has really resonated with me is uh, physics beats platitudes. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to explain what that means and uh, talk about energy a bit in general? Give us an introduction. Yeah, our, our overarching theme, which is self-evident to us, um, but apparently is is sometimes lost on our political leaders, is um, energy is life. Um, you know, we we have two tiers for Doomberg. We have our articles, and then we have a pro tier, and um, our pro tier gets a monthly doom zoom call, as we call it, and um, a, a, which is a fixed presentation and then a lengthy Q&A. And sometimes we'll have guests on and so on. And we did our first doom zoom um, last month. And um, it was on this exact topic, which is, uh, you know, uh, energy, the economy and currencies. Um, energy is life. Um, thermodynamics, physics is, is they're just fundamental laws of the universe. And one of the fundamental laws of the universe, the second law of thermodynamics is that, um, disorder is spontaneous. 
Um, and what that means is um, every closed system dissipates to, you know, more disorder. And your standard of living is literally defined by how much heat you get to waste because it takes wasted heat to impose order on your local environment temporarily. And how much order you get to impose on your local environment is a literal definition of your standard of living. And <laughs> all humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. And so um, energy is life and harnessing energy is the definition of GDP. It, it like the, we, we call it cash-based accounting of energy. So the amount of energy you get to harness this year um, defines how much standard of living you get to distribute to the population. Now, depending on the economic model you impose in order to um, transact in energy, you, you get different outcomes. And so, for example, we have a huge disparity in equality um, right now in the Western developing world, the Western developed world. Um, and so what that means is like for many people, um, perhaps more pronounced in the developing world, um, the daily struggle to achieve the first base of the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs defines their existence. Um, fresh water, housing, clothing, food, um, health. Um, energy defines that. And so there's a reason why societies go from burning wood to burning coal, to burning oil, to burning natural gas, to nuclear. Um, it's called energy return and energy invested. Um, and we laid all this out in a very early piece called Why Are Cows Sacred? Oh, yes. And um, cows are sacred because they're essentially the first solar-powered rechargeable battery. Um, they, they eat grass that humans can't eat, and they convert that grass, that the chemical energy that has been stored through the miracle of photosynthesis, which takes irradiation from the sun and, and creates plant life. Um, Cows take that energy and convert it into milk. And uh, humans can consume cow milk and they can preserve that energy in the form of cheese. And then when the rechargeable battery has exhausted itself and can no longer be recharged, um, the terminal value of the cow is the bounty of meat that it provides um, upon its slaughter. And so the reason why cows are sacred is because they, they enabled humans to harness more of the sun's energy to live a better life. And so you know, energy is life, and we've gotten energy terribly wrong um, politically, um, which is... Yeah, I guess that leads us to our next <clears throat> question, which sure. is, uh, why is gas so high? I know you've answered this a lot. Which gas are you referring to, gasoline or natural gas? Uh, let's say gasoline. Let's say gasoline first. We can do na natural gas yeah. after. Uh, gasoline is a refined product of oil, and um, and oil is in short supply. So because of the vilification of the fossil fuel industry by the ESG movement, and in particular, their effectiveness in choking off access to finances to both maintain existing infrastructure and to explore and develop new um, oil fields, there is a chronic shortage of this life-producing energy and the price elasticity of demand for life is um, inelastic. <laughs> and, and so um, the question boils down to um, who can afford to pay it. And, and this is why we're seeing an exacerbation of income inequality because you know, I, whatever the price of gasoline is, is 
an ops, a point of observation for me, but it's not affecting my lifestyle, but it's literally life or death for a whole slug of people on the planet. And um, so gas is high because we have underinvested in the fossil fuel sector in the name of quote unquote, saving the planet uh, for who we might ask, but um, nonetheless, the ESG movement is an anti is predominantly an anti-human movement uh, when you break it down to its core, um, because without energy, you have no life. And so um, the absence of life is death and the absence of energy is the absence of life. And so um, we have chronicled um, the follies of, of our elected political class. Well, not met, few of them are actually elected, which is a whole other issue. Um, and so the laws of physics dictate that the GDP growth society can experience is limited by the, the energy it can harness. And if you attack sources of energy, you are necessarily inhibiting the economic development of your society, which manifests itself predominantly and primarily in those who are least able to adapt. And this is why we're seeing in the developing world already food riots, uh, social disorder, uh, and total breakdown of, of, of economic structures. Um, and right. unfortunately, it's just the beginning. Yeah. I think that one interesting frame of this is to look at things through high energy versus low energy environmentalism, right? Because essentially one of the big fights within the kind of left that I'm kind of just like looking at right now in the United States is over using NEPA or over overturning NEPA, not even for drilling projects or something like that, but simply for clean energy. So, or like, let, let's use something, let's use some other other term for it if you want. But essentially, basically, uh, you have these kind of uh, of low energy environmental environmentalists who pass these kind of absurd uh, regulations. And now it's not just getting in the way of kind of uh, drilling, but it's getting in the way of people who want to build solar panels. It's getting uh, in the way of wind. And and even if you're more skeptical of this, there's kind of this there's kind of this real divide between I think people who who you might still think are wrong, but who want to maintain the same quality of life through uh, supplementing energy or replacing energy, um, and, and people who I think are are just completely ignorant on the kind of costs that they're inflicting on the general population. Yeah. Uh, and it's... so I really want to get your kind of understanding of this because you, you are the kind of dom domain expert here. I think where is the kind of, where is the kind of bottleneck happening? Where is the kind of like, what is the root cause of this kind of acceptance of just de decline and decadence that, I think like maybe this is because my family is an Im immigrant family, but I think it's just like completely unacceptable for the, for the West to take as a position. Yeah. Uh, so I said something earlier that may have sound flippant, um, but it is anything but, which is if you deduce it down to its core, there's an anti-human element of the most extreme and the loudest environmental voices on the far left. Um, yeah. You don't, and, you don't even have to kind of look very far for this, yeah, right? You had um, you had this kind of article uh, actually that that was critiquing this movement in the Atlantic, right? I'll yeah, I'll put in the uh, show notes that uh, this and, is the this is the anti-human ideology or something like that. And they their fundamental belief is that all human impact is bad on the planet, mm. and that in a way humans are a cancer on nature that we can't be trusted, uh, we don't deserve to flourish. Um, 
And unfortunately, um, through effective, you know, disinformation campaigns and um, they've, they've scared people. I would say that um, feeling guilty about your standard of living is a luxury of the rich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even think that that's true, though. I don't think they've been very effective at changing the public opinion on these oh, things at all. Surprised. I mean, I, well, I think they have shaped there's a whole swath of people that when presented with the consequences would change their mind, but they, those people are unaware and have been sold something that isn't true, which is that there is an easy path to ending our reliance on fossil fuels that is only being held up by greedy oil companies looking to line their pockets with profits. Yeah. Um, and in reality, the physics would say it's impossible. Like John Kerry is out today talking about, some outlandish objective to increase the number of electric vehicles in the US by a factor of 20. Where is the lithium going to come from? Where is the cobalt <laughs> going to come? Where's the nickel going to come from? Where's the diesel going to come from to power all of those mines that's going to produce this bounty of metals that are needed to um, catalyze the, 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 the green, so-called green electric vehicle transition? It's literal bullshit. Um, and he is a czar, an appointed czar that flies around the world in a private jet and lectures to poor people everywhere how um, how they should be getting by with less energy. Who the hell is John Kerry? And why does his opinion count? It's a great question. Yeah, it, it's just so, it, it's also transparent too. Like, why did they call him a czar? That, that was, that's just like comedic. It's, it, it's Orwell, out of, couldn't, like... Orwell, was a, Orwell was a piker. I mean, he couldn't have, you know, this, it's, we live in amazing times. And, you know, of course we, we're passionate about this because we understand from a physics perspective where this has to end. It ends in death and starvation and unneeded suffering. Um, and it just, you know, it's frustrating because we're going to have to get there. And like what we're seeing in Sri Lanka today, you know, the, 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 the country's collapsing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And a very interesting thought that I had uh, that I was communicating when I was, uh, when I was talking to Sam Aburia on this podcast, or sorry, an interesting thought that he had is that, uh, is that this is basically the justification of poverty. Right. This is this is a kind of post hoc ideology that is, is that is justifying poverty because we we we're dealing with a kind of bureaucracy that is unable to steer us towards a different destination. Um, That's the, the kind of idea is that if you just compare Europe relative to the United States, and I know you agree with this, that actually circumstances are much worse in Europe in terms of energy, uh, especially now, um, but but even before uh, that. There is this kind of base incompetence, and we'll we'll get to why that incompetence exists later in this conversation. But there's this kind of base incompetence in the kind of bureaucrat middle manager class, which means in practice that they do not know which buttons to push in order to go from our current gas price to like pre pre war gas prices. Right? They do not know what buttons to push they are just systematically incapable of getting there. And really what I think this is, and and uh, as I said, this this idea is originally from Samo, is that this is kind of a, a narrative hedge, right? Uh, the thing that I added onto this is that you see this type of hedging everywhere, that you see this as a political archetype, really. You can see it in the 2008 financial crisis or in the past financial crisis leading up to it, 
where people were saying, oh, it's the era of growth. And then after that, oh, we've gotten risk and rid of volatility. We can't, we can't say people will think we're lying if we say there's an era of growth now. So, so we've gotten rid of volatility. And then 2008 happened, of course, they were lying again. And then now what they're saying, oh, it's more like secular stagnation, right? It's all, it's actually like, okay, all of the productivity is gone, but we're kind of like, we're kind of like stable here. And so you should still be going into, into stocks. And there's no, there's no better alternative here. Uh, and you can see this kind of hedging take place where they're formulating these kind of more and more inevitable, these kind of like external actor kind of narratives because they themselves are incompetent. And the primary reason for this is to kind of protect themselves from accountability. When we, when we ponder history, sometimes history is like unbelievable to read, right? So um, Stalin's collectivism led to, you know, what, 4 million dead, I believe. Um, mm. Or the Great Leap Forward, you know, by by Mao. All of these were driven by sincere beliefs and ideology, and somehow these horrific uh, means justifying. Uh, so the, the, these 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 utopian ends justifying these horrific means. Um, and I just these things happened, um, and so therefore they could happen again. And in a way, the echoes of, of the fallacies of, of the philosophies at the heart of those easy-to-make-fun-of episodes now or to assume they could never happen again, um, you know, we see them again. There's this, you know, this catastrophe-driven mindset of, sure, 100 million people will starve, but we're going to, quote-unquote, save the planet, whatever the hell that means. Um, it, it's, it's, it's incredible to see it play out in real time. And it, like, look, look, there's going to come a time and that time is measured in years, not decades where this conversation will be censored um, because we are um, going to be labeled as disinformationist and deniers. Um, and so we're steeled for that um, and we're ready for that, but it's coming like this is until something is done about it. This is the trajectory that we're on. It, it, it's unthinkable five years ago that, um, People could question the policy of, uh, you know, national health vis-a-vis um, -vis vaccines and be deleted. Doctors being deleted on Twitter for their opinions, like for their opinions. Um, and now we just accept that that's there's just certain topics you're not, quote unquote, allowed to opine about, even if you believe you're right and data is on your side. Um, we're heading very quickly to a phase where um, debating climate science, which is I put in quotes, um, is going to be off limits. You either accept what our overlords have decided for you or you shut up. Um, and that's coming. I don't think that's, I don't know, because I think that especially with the current kind of reality striking back, this isn't... They're going to double down. Yeah, that... that <laughs> I don't think that case is really defensible anymore, even in the kind of wow. elite institutions, right? I, I don't think that that case that actually we don't have to worry about trade-offs, that we just have to implement these policies and not and like just press the button without thinking, like that is clearly in and of itself not sustainable. And maybe they're going to add another layer of narrative hedge. Maybe they're going to say, oh, we are always going to have this economic decline. But I, I really don't think anyone is going to believe them. And if they try to, I don't know, did the like, it, like or 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 just like, and, and I'll be clear, like I'm, sure. I'm I like quite pro vaccine, right? I think the vaccine is, is like very effective in preventing kind of deaths and such like that. But 
Um, like it or not, public opinion overall is still overwhelmingly on the side of, uh, of the kind of pro-vaccine argument. Right, you you do have to have at least a bit of social consensus in order to enforce some uh, positions like that. Even though, if I I would agree with you that the position that you should allow different sides of debate is kind of more uh, morally correct in my view, you still when you're talking about what you're kind of attacking, right? What kind of speech you're attacking? Public opinion does matter in that case. And I don't think that this kind of like climate maximalist narrative, uh, I just came up with that right now, they, they are quite similar to Bitcoin maximalists in a way. I, I do think that kind of climate maximalist narrative is just not going to hold anymore. Like, yeah, so it, let me be it, very it's clear. just impossible. <laughs> uh, every adult on the Doomberg team has been vaccinated. Um, it's not about the topic. It's about exactly. The, it's about the censorship of the topic. And I would defend... Um, people's right to express their opinions and to not get a vaccine. Um, you know, you can be, uh, you could believe that the vaccines are reasonably effective against hedging the worst possible outcomes and also believe that people who do not want to get a vaccine have a right to not get one. Um, and you can also believe that um, the desire to minimize humans' impact on the planet is a good thing, but it also needs to be weighed against how much, you know, life we're willing to distribute to the humans that exist on the planet. Um, my fear and my strong belief is that we are heading down a path irreversibly of uh, increasing control and censorship by unelected and unaccountable global technology companies, for example. Um, like we, we are susceptible to many nodes right now as Doomberg. Like we, Obviously, Substack and our payment processor and um, our banks, like all this can be turned off mm. you know, with a flick of a switch and we would have no recourse. We don't have a right to do these things today. And so if we wrote something that people found objectionable, we could be canceled. Um, and this is totally opposite to the U.S. freedom of speech um, mindset and the speed with which people are comfortable canceling people that they disagree with is scary and it's Orwellian and um, just, they're going to double down. Like Europe is going to continue making idiotic choices on energy. And if people need to starve at the sacrifice of their religion, then they will starve because this is what religions do. Um, and so, right. I, and I, we've been talking in kind of abstract philosophical terms for a bit. So let, let's kind of switch back to the kind of Doomberg classic in terms of mm -hmm. the kind of analysis of what's actually happening on the ground. And and you talk about people starving. And I, I do want to be be clear. I've heard you on kind of other appearances. I've I've read your uh, uh, newsletters. Uh, this is this is not a joke, right? So so what exactly is happening with food around the world right now? So food. You can think of the production of food and farming as the operating of a factory. Mm. Um, it has inputs. The manner and efficiency with which you manipulate those inputs and convert them into the final product matters. And the amount of final product you can produce is knowable. It's bounded by the inputs. Um, the amount that you need in order to maintain um, human existence multiplied by the number of people on the planet is also knowable. Um, when you measure both of those today, there's a shortage. Uh, we will not be producing enough food 
and nor will we be de- able to distribute equitably enough food um, for the number of people on the planet that we have today to survive. The path function from knowing that to realizing that is hard to predict, but it is conclusively proven <laughs> given the shortfall in inputs and the skyrocketing price of inputs, which is going to affect yields and going to affect. Um, and what does that what does that shortfall in inputs look like? Let's let's really get into the weeds sure. here. So you know, in order to grow food, you need fertilizer. In order to protect a field from weeds, you need herbicides. And in order to protect a field from insects, you need fungicides. Um, the skyrocketing cro- costs of energy is causing the costs of all of those things to explode, which is causing less sophisticated farmers in the developing world to be unable to afford fertilizer or herbicides or fungicides. And it's just impossible that that won't manifest itself in lower yields in future harvests. And the world has an inventory of food that's measured in weeks. Um, And it, it's a rare thing that um, harvest wasn't the biggest part of the year for humans. Like this is a rare time in the long arc of human history that we didn't literally live and die by the quality of the harvests. We're about to reenter such a period um, because of our bundling of our energy policy. So you can't make fertilizer without energy. You can't make herbicides and fungicides without energy. Um, And so because of the European energy crisis, Fertilizer plants in Europe became grossly disadvantaged and stopped producing. Um, That energy crisis bled into China, at least temporarily, as Europe and and, um, China and and Korea and Japan were bidding against each other for the incremental boat of liquefied natural gas. Um, And so, you know, China halted the exports of phosphates, which are currently being used to make batteries for electric vehicles instead of being used as fertilizers in the field, which is a perversion of environmentalism that I can't quite wrap my brain around. Um, <laughs> as we predicted in a piece we wrote back in October called Starvation Diet, um, the, the rolling series of protectionist policies um, will eventually lead to economic vapor lock and war. And of course, war did break out. And um, potash, you know, 40% of the world's potash is produced in Belarus, and um, that's, you know, being sanctioned. Um, And so, yeah, when you add it all up, like there's a diesel shortage. We just wrote a piece called Grim Diesel um, because Mm. natural gas is used in the refining of oil to make diesel. And um, natural gas prices in Europe cause refiners there to stop making diesel, and that led to a shortage. And diesel is used to power the tractors and to ship the grains on the rail line and to truck the food from the factory to the grocery store and all that is in serious jeopardy today. Now the U S our belief is that the U S will, will set the clearing price. We will bail out farmers that need it. We will provide economic stimulus for those less fortunate. Um, and we will pay the clearing price to get whatever it is we need to maintain our current lofty excessive standard of living. Um, and that will only serve to export food inflation to the rest of the world who are least capable of paying it. And, we're seeing that play out today. So, I mean, in Sri Lanka as a country went down a disastrous um, path of uh, pushing organic farming at a rate that was unsustainable. 
and um, one harvest, and um, you know, here we are. Uh, the country's falling apart. Um, for those yeah, who are the, the rice riots, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's literally a fertilizer mm-hmm. riot. Um, oh, I see. It's like they banned the import of fertilizers and and herbicides, um, glyphosate. Um, it's a great podcast on Chris Kiefer's show, Decouple, um, that that captures this. Um, you know, the guest's name escapes me as I'm talking now, but um, if you go to the Decouple podcast, his latest episode is on the background of the Sri Lankan disaster. Um, these stories are going to pop up randomly. Who knows which country's next? Um, but the laws of physics dictate that we do not have enough input to produce enough food to feed the people we have on the planet today. Um, it's, that's unfortunate because we have such a bounty of energy and such technical know-how to harness it that this is literally a choice of incompetence. Um, and because these people aren't sitting next to the leaders who have decided on these disastrous policies, they're perhaps easier to, um, to, to close your eyes and assume it's not happening or that's just happening over there. We, we, we refer to that phenomenon as the proximity effect of empathy. Mm. Um, and so, um, they're starving over there, um, is not my fault. Um, is, is yeah, how people, you're people not accountable to them, right? Exactly. You, you don't you don't lose your position of power if they're exactly. if they're the ones starving. Um, an interesting an interesting kind of side player here uh, is the issue of trade, right? Uh, and there are kind of two dueling narratives here. One is the kind of populist Sagar and Jetty kind of narrative of oh, we internationalized our supply chains too much, and now now that there's been disruptions, now that there's disruption in one area of the country or one area of the world, sorry, it's we're, the the kind of crows are coming home to roost. Um, but uh, another narrative is that we kind of don't do globalization enough, right? That's kind of like the the story behind the baby formula. We have all of these excessive, like absurd regulations, literally not even about the quality, but about the labels and about like the, the kind of specifications. And now uh, the United States doesn't have enough baby formula while Mexico, Canada, um, Europe has, uh, has plenty. Um, so uh, what do you think? What do you think is the kind of through line here? Do you think that there's, there's uh, too much trade or there's not enough? Um, I, I would say <clears throat> the imbalances of trade that exist today and the deindustrialization of the U.S. in particular um, lay bare the fallacy that Luke Roman has done so much good work on that um, you know that the U.S. dollar reserve system and then um, you know the, the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency and and Treasury bills as the reserve assets is is a system that cannot continue. Um, the fact that we have, um, so much debt, which is needed, um, because these excess reserves of the energy producing countries need to go somewhere, um, is, is forcing, uh, the deindustrialization of the U S and so, um, the, 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 the manufacturing base in the U S became uncompetitive because the dollar um, was too strong and, um, that, that is a national security issue. There's sort of a tug of war between sort of Wall Street and, and the Department of Defense on what you have sort of what we would call financialization of manufacturing and outsourcing and, and all of those things. And uh, there's no doubt that we have uh, for too long um, sacrificed robustness for efficiency, or at least in the name of efficiency in our supply chains. And, and the managerial class, which you referred to again earlier, has been rewarded um, and it's a fascinating thing. You know, Ben Hunt has written about this quite a bit, the, the epsilon theory. Um, when you compensate middle management with options, volatility is desirable. 
because the Black-Scholes theory would say that volatility increases the value of your options. And so, especially if you're getting a steady series of, of options, you know, annually. Um, and so it's all sort of mixed into the same problem. Um, there is going to have to be a, a reset. Um, there is going to be um, a, a this pivot. It's almost cliche now to say from just in time to just in case, which is highly, hmm. highly inflationary. Um, and there is going to be an onshoring, but there can't be a true onshoring and domestication of manufacturing until um, the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve asset, at least. Um, T-bills are not really. Here. Why do you say that? Uh, because of the it's a, it's a very controversial topic and probably worthy of its own show, and we're not the most qualified to opine on it. There's an ongoing debate between, you know. Um, Luke Roman and and you know um, Brett Johnson of Santiago Capital on Twitter, which you can find and follow, and we do, and it's fascinating. But I we tend to fall in the Luke Roman camp. We're subscribers to his to his research. Um, ultimately, the reason why um, manufacturing left the U.S. is because it was quote unquote cheaper to do it offshore. Um, that's a relative measure, and a key input into that measure is the strength of your currency. So there's a reason why. Wait, countries... wait, wait. There, there's so much. There's so much going on there, right? I, I don't think that's the case at all. But sorry, sorry. Continue. I shouldn't have interrupted. Yeah, you. Con- continue. And, I uh, lived make, it. make the case. Change my mind. Yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, I lived it as an executive, uh, and I saw hmm. the um, pressure from Wall Street to offshore. Let's just give you a great example, um, the, the, which we've written about um, the solar industry, which we were active participants. Or I mean, in. like, why why is it based on the value of the currency, or like primarily well, based on the value of cheaper, the currency? Right. Um, and so there's a reason why countries devalue their currency when they get too strong because it protects their manufacturers. Like this is economics 101. Um, it's not a controversial point, I don't think. Um, uh, I think that's a tool, but I don't think that's the primary defining attribute. I think the primary defining attribute is the value of labor in that country, and and there's tons of things that go into that. Um, there, there's regulations, of course, and there's also sure. just like Ricardian efficiency. Right, you have sure. people uh, in in the West who can take tons of other uh, other jobs that, that that pay more, and so you have this kind of like ups, uh, you have this kind of uh, upcharge in manufacturing costs. Whereas people who uh, really like don't even have anything ha- have anything uh, better to do uh, are are going to be working for less in other countries. Plus, they have uh, less regulation. However, you feel about that. Maybe you think that this means their workers are more likely to be mistreated. Maybe you think that uh, this means that they're just working more efficiently, right, depending on which side of the political aisle you're on. But they have an advantage from that as well, right? It's it's not just like, it's not just like currency thing, I think. Yeah, well, there, there is no one answer that explains all the, the variability that we see. But the, the, the generalized statement of stronger currency means less competitive manufacturing base is just undeniable, even for high value added manufacturing. Um, okay, I think that that's true, like correlationally, but I don't think like that's the primary. Uh, I, I just don't think that's the primary determinant, right? So, for example, if we uh, it, let's say we we just had like uh, we just, and of course, there's a matter of degree here, but what what would be easier, uh, getting some more onshoring through kind of uh, through kind of having a strict Fed and really controlling. Uh, currency inflation and having a stronger currency versus um, really enabling, removing some of the red tape, enabling some of the local development, uh, and maybe even loosening up some of those labor standards. Like sure. maybe that, like it is, and as as you said before, they're uh, much. Uh, kind of better subject experts to differ this to as well. I hope to have Brian Kaplan on, for example. But um, th- this is 
this is not necessarily like so I don't the, know. I, I the, think that the, this is just a kind of like over over so, explanation going on. Uh, so the percent of the variance that strong currency explains is not insignificant, is my point. Um, all of the other factors that you um, describe are certainly real, <clears throat> and there's a few others that I would add to that pile. Um, mm -hmm. Not the least of which is the um, the misappropriation of value that we have placed on efficiency over redundancy. Um, see over. Okay, that's very interesting. Go on. And so, right. So companies for decades were rewarded on just in time, lean, efficient. Um, and, you know, the there's an old joke in the engineering world, which is um, it only takes one zero and a geometric mean to know what the answer is. And so we have under, <laughs> we have underpriced risk. Um, which, just explain what that means to the audience. Oh, it's it's well, it's. it's it's a nerd yeah, joke. Basically, like you, you multiply a bunch of numbers together. If one yeah, of them is zero, the, everything the, fails. Correct. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the whole pricing of risk. And so Jim Grant in particular at Interest Rate Observer, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, would say that by manipulating interest rates, we have fundamentally perverted the pricing of risk, which hmm. necessarily ends up in the blowing of bubbles and collapses and shocks and things that we've observed. Um, and so for as a as a corporate executive at a publicly traded company, I can assure you that um, we were forced to compete against um, and were measured by um, how we competed against Chinese companies that had unfair local advantages. Um, and and the most the easiest example to explain and one that should annoy environmentalists is how we completely seeded, almost completely seeded the entire polysilicon market to China. Um, the U.S. used to be a, a, a substantial producer of polysilicon, which is needed to make solar panels. Um, and the Chinese um, used a combination of slave labor and cheap coal to um, flood the world with uh, artificially cheap solar panels that put Western companies out of business. And if you were a publicly traded company that had a polysilicon arm, you were punished by Wall Street because you were going to lose money. And... Um, we had poor policies in the U.S. that protect against that, like you say, policy and labor and all those. Other. By the way, very mm. pro labor. I'm very pro. Um, like I and I, for example, I, I, I one of the things that China does a lot and did a lot and personally impacted businesses that I was a member of was they stole intellectual property. So we, we would literally mm. have our inventions show up as a, as a competing bid at at high profile companies that you would know, um, and the procurement teams will look at us and say, "Well, you got to cut your price by forty percent because we have." Uh, we have a competitive over here that's 40% cheaper than you. And we would look at them and we would say, but they stole our technology and we're suing them. And it is unethical for you to accept stolen goods as a bid. And we're not going to meet that bid. And they say, yeah, well, that's for the courts to decide. And so you lose the business. Um, mm. That's how you end up with a carving out of U.S. manufacturing, which is the strength of the currency as a key input into it. It explains a fair bit of the variance. It doesn't explain all of it. Um, but the, the combination of those factors, the underpricing of risk, um, the desire for efficiency and quarterly, you know, quarterly, your quarterly reporting of your profits and loss uh, as a corporation should be should be almost irrelevant. But it's the most relevant thing that de that determines the stock price, which determines your compensation for the year, which determines the incentives, which determines the behavior. Um, and so it's the, the COVID pandemic and now the energy crisis will eventually lay bare the fallacy of the organizing systems of economics that we have operated under and hopefully will be the genesis of improved operating procedures on a go forward basis. Um,
But yeah, the U.S. dollar is is as the reserve currency is a headwind to the onshoring of critical supply chains. Yeah, and you that, mentioned a point there that I think is very interesting, and I, I actually am very interested to discuss with you, which is this kind of uh, short term, this kind of short termism, right? That I, I think there is a fundamental, uh, there's a fundamental asymmetry here, which is basically that the short termism kind of makes sense from an investment perspective, right? Because even if you're making a decision that's not necessarily good in the long term, you can kind of like increase the company value temporarily and then kind of flip the trade and then go go somewhere else with your money. Uh, and, and this is actually like very, very destructive, even if it's good for the investor, right? Um, so do you have any clues on how we how we fix that kind of asymmetry uh, or whether it's a problem at all, if you would say that? It's, it's a huge problem. And um, it's why we only invest, effectively only invest privately. Um, mm, yes, private companies um, don't have this problem. Yeah, There's fewer and fewer public companies, actually, um, in part because, um, you know, I, I view publicly traded companies as exit liquidity for founders and, and, and early stage investors. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just need the cash, right? Yeah, but it's sure. Um, but I would say one of the, like the, like I've said on many appearances, we, um, we earn money in fiat, we save by buying real assets and we invest privately where we can affect the outcome. Um, so we can actually participate in the value creation, leveraging our skills, our network, and, um, ability to fundraise and things like that. Um, and so, but also part of it is because um, you can make decisions in a private setting with a bit of a longer term horizon. You can decide we're going to burn cash for six quarters instead of two, because if we burn cash for six quarters and we have access to stable funding, the payoff will be 50 times better than if we run cash constrained um, after only two quarters, uh, those are real calculations that you can make as a private enterprise um, that you can't make as a publicly traded company. There are many great things about publicly traded companies, um, and there's lots of controversy around why it is that only accredited investors can invest privately, and so on and so on and so on. Mm. Um, I understand all of those things, um, but given the suite of choices available to us, um, the we, we are, as you could probably deduce, pro robustness in our own lives. You know, we, yeah. I'm, a, uh, I'm a big believer in the prepared, preparedness mindset, and um, and to hedge against tail risks, and to um, oh yeah, you you can say prepping on this show. Like, yeah, sure. I'm a, like my, my my audience won't yeah. be against that. I, I'm, I'm, oh, a, I'm a defensive pessimist. You know, if you can hedge <laughs> against, if you could hedge against the yeah, worst yeah, case. Yeah, you know who? Uh, do you know who BJ Campbell is? I do not. Uh, the yeah. writer of Hand Waving Freak Outery. He uh, okay. Yeah. He, I think this episode is actually coming out uh, the week after we are we are recording this. Uh, but uh, basically, he, he writes a similar case as well, where he talks about all these kind of uh, tail risks that could occur. And like, if if you're someone who's relatively high income, like it, it just makes sense to uh, it, it makes sense to uh, make sure that if there is indeed a shortage or something like that, that you have you have food for yourself, you have food for your family, uh, and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, the way I phrase it is um, I pay home insurance, right? Yes. Every year, monthly, whatever. Um, let's say I pay, I don't know, $2,000 a year for home insurance, whatever the number is. Um, when the year comes and the calendar turns, um, I don't bemoan the fact that my house didn't burn down. 
<laughs> right? Um, How tragic. I, I, I pay for house insurance under the hope and the expectation um, that I will never need it. I don't need to actually buy house insurance because I, as you could probably guess, I'm not a big debt person. So, um, and so I could, in theory, not carry home ins homeowner's insurance uh, on my house. Um, I do. And I'm happy to pay it. And I'm happy to hedge against that tail risk of showing up and seeing my house on fire. Yeah. Um, or, you know, somehow destroyed through some natural calamity. Although not that I would ever buy a house in an area that had a high potential for natural calamity. Um, and so it, it's the same way with prepping. Um, I, I, I don't want to live in a world where I need to be self-sufficient for a year. Um, because that world is probably not a very pleasant place to live in. But it's foolish not to be, if you can afford it, um, so I'm not judging those who can't, um, it'd be foolish not to hedge against tail risk for two weeks or 30 days, some reasonable amount of time to bridge yourself through 99% of the tail risk that you might um, be taking and not even knowing it. You know, like um, if you analyze your home as a factory, there's sort of four main inputs and two main outputs, and, and I have a plan for losing those. Um, so the inputs are electricity and water, um, natural gas and goods and services, you know, the, the Amazon man. Um, and the outputs are garbage and, um, and, and human waste. And there's a flow. And the, my factory produces the health and well-being of myself and my wife and my children. Um, and as an as a, as a owner-operator of that factory, you know, in, in partnership with, with my wife, um, and my closest friends and their families, um, I feel a deep responsibility to ensure that I have um, redundancy plans for all six of those key flows. Hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of, yeah, that just kind of mathematical case tends to make sense to me. I, I don't know if this is just particularly kind of, uh, a particularly kind of um, relatively kind of high income discussion but i don't know like it, it gets harder to make the same calculation if if you don't have uh, as many resources right and but if you live off the yeah. land i think you store extra wood you you know you put some food in the cellar in the in the you know like you i think the preparedness mindset actually was far more common when people had less because they understood the consequences of being stocked out were death um and so yeah. i think quite and the, the risk reverse. was also higher than i think well, that's my point. Yes, I think the reverse has happened, which is as we've become oh, really? here, we have become more arrogant about just assuming the magic of supply chains would never stop. Um, the vast majority of our peers um, have less than a week of food right, in their dwelling. Um, they just go to the grocery store when they want to buy food. Um, they, it used to be that everyone would prepare for the winter. Right. Like um, that was a generation ago, maybe two at most. Yeah. But that's um, kind of what I'm saying, right? Like every yeah. winter, there would be a very high risk of shortages. Whereas now we can kind of, I mean, you can say falsely or not, but I think at least like relatively, we are more secure, right? Relative uh, to them individually. Well, let's see how the world does in the next harvest. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So you talked about, you talked about the U.S. Uh, bailing out uh, farmers and, and essentially kind of making, making everyone whole, right? Like, why do you, um, what, what's your kind of model of that happening? What's your kind of model of uh, the political circumstances that we'll see in like a year or two? For this season, there will be no need for a bailout because U.S. farmers, um, many of whom pre-bought fertilizer and or hedged, um, are going to make an enormous amount of money. 
at these prices. Oh, uh, great. Yeah. Um, but if they did need it, they would get it. And the unbroken history of that occurring is just undeniable, right? And so um, the farmer's lobby is strong. And look, it's great. I love nothing more than a robust and strong um, farming sector, because that is a key pillar of the entire economy. Uh, yes, not um, starving is great. <laughs> correct. I'll take it. You know, even if there's a little bit of waste or graft or, you know, grift or, you know, um, it's fine. Like, just make sure that there's food. I'll be happy for it. Um, <laughs> but the the real damage this year is going to be in the developing world. And then we'll see how U.S. farmers do next year. Um, if these fertilizer prices remain so robust and if diesel is in such short supply and all the factors we outlined in a piece called um, Farmers on the Brink continue to manifest itself, um, then then the U.S. will, of course, bail out farmers, um, as they have always done. Um, and so this is just uh, an axiom of U.S. economics. And how do you think in general uh, the two political parties are going to deal with this um, with the supply chain crisis, with the oil uh, increase, we, we haven't seen much of anything, right? Do you, was that what you expected before? Like, what did you predict? And uh, what do you predict in the future? I, I, I don't see very much difference between the two parties. Um, hmm. They're both characterized by an odd combination of corruption and incompetence. And, um, and um, it feels like, you know, when you have the Speaker of the House day trading call options in the companies that have legislation before her, or whether the you know, the House, the Senate minority leader's wife is knee deep in Chinese corruption. Um, it is just, it's all, it's a sort of the uniparty system of Washington, D.C. against the rest of the country. And um, so I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about um, any potential change in that regard. Um, so, yeah. Maybe this is taking you into my territory now, but like, why do you think that is? How did we, how did we get here? Right. Um, slowly. And then all of a sudden. Um, I would say that, you know, the... Uh, Slowly incre- and all of a sudden we become politically bankrupt? Yeah, I'd say the the what's ethical incrementalism, you know, of what has become acceptable or, you know, what things that would normally cause a politician to resign have become survivable. And, um, and so then that just teaches um, that boundaries can be pushed. Um, and um, they push them. And so um, another problem is, of course, once you make it personally almost impossible to run for public office without running through a gauntlet of, of, of um, destructive attacks on your life and the people in it, um, you end up distilling a certain type of person who is willing to go through that gauntlet. And uh, it distills a certain psychopathy um, uh, because the prize is, must be worth it for them to go through that. And so once they get there, they feel like um, they're entitled to the grift and to wetting their beak on the backs of the public. Um, and so that's what happens. You have this spiral of um, capable, honorable people don't go into politics. Why would they? It's more lucrative not to, and uh, it's more destructive to do so. Um, and so the most competent people I know are out starting a company or working in large companies and, and being entrepreneurs. And, um, and so you end up with the leaders that we have, which is a totally corrupt. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that's a, that's a controversial statement to say that most of DC is corrupt. Right. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I don't think um, changing parties in the next election is going to bend the curve <laughs> that we're on. Um, so. Yeah, but how is the how is the political system in general going to react, right? Are are, are they just going to keep letting things like get worse? Like like what is actually going to happen, right? 
And I know it's hard to make predictions, but like, yeah, that's the fun in it, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, here versus the rest of the world, of course, are two different answers. Um, uh, yeah, in the United States. Let's just focus yeah. on the United States for now. I don't know. Yeah, it's a chaotic system, right? And so, you know, sen- sensitively dependent on initial conditions. Um, we had this event on January 6th, um, which is startling and and um, shocking, right? And um, this whole swath of the country, for example, that thinks the last election wasn't legitimate. There's that's not healthy either way, whether it was or it wasn't. Um, the the yeah, and it's just kind of like crazy, right? The, the thing that just, I've talked about. Just take like, a step back, yeah, and say like this is not healthy, like either way. Like you can say one side is wrong, but that it exists is a priori unhealthy. They would just agree on that. Um, yeah. And. Um, and then also there is this, um, one of the things I'm fascinated by is this, this cult mindset that we see. I have a hunch we haven't written about it. It's one of these ideas for a piece that's percolating until you find the right reason to write about it. Um, that the, like the, take the collapse of Luna, um, not to like totally change things, but I think there's a, there's a lesson embedded in that. There's a community aspect to all of these. Uh, and, and just a quick interlude. What is what is Luna? And yeah, it's a, it's just a, like a um, kind of like two sentence summary. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, a stablecoin Ponzi scheme that collapsed on itself. Um, yeah, a lot of people were buying into this uh, th- yeah. this company that claimed to be a, a a currency that was always pegged to the U.S. dollar, but was somehow also providing you dividends. Yeah, twenty percent. Like, what? Yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, there's some value <laughs> being created in the Luna ecosystem and the Anchor Protocol. How, how is it being fake, created? And, what is happening um, here? I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm only telling you what they said. I'm not telling yeah, you. Yeah, what exactly. Uh, that was kind uh, of rhetorical. But, but yeah. there was. A, there's always this very strong community mindset, and when you read the profiles of the people that lost all of their money as the marginal investor in a Ponzi scheme has to mathematically. Um, these are smart people. They could you know, professionals, they could be your neighbors that and they got sucked into these cults. And I wonder whether the, like just take, you know, the there's all kinds of communities that have very fervent beliefs and their allegiance are to those communities and not necessarily to the country. Um, and so there's a part of the impact of social media and the clickification of anger, um, you know, that, that sort of boxes people into various communities. And I, I, there's a story there. I haven't quite fully worked it out, as you can tell, because I'm sort of thinking about it in real time while talking to you. Um, but there's, there's a, the, we have become more susceptible to to curated information. So the, the, you know, the confirmation bias that is accessible now where you can literally create echo chambers with thousands of other people's where the only opinions you ever hear are ones you agree with, um, is troubling. And I think there's an input into our current situation that that explains that is not yet sort of fully explored. I'm sure somebody has explored it. We haven't explored it. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, you're going to love this. So BJ Campbell, previous guest, he introduced me to this term egregore, right? Okay. Um, which is an originally uh, uh, an occult term, meaning basically the spirit that kind of uh, that kind of like arises and controls a bunch of cultists, but uh, is used in the kind of modern sense uh, by BJ and others mm-hmm. uh, to talk about this kind of social media phenomenon where people have kind of outsourced their thinking to their social media apps. Right. 
So you have people, this is the metaphor that he uses. I'm basically re- repeating it verbatim, but you have, uh, this should be some completely uncontroversial, but you have people outsourcing their th- parts of their thinking to Google Maps, right? Yeah you, yeah. you don't actually know how to get to A to B. You turn on Google Maps, it does the thinking for you. Uh, and, and that actually social media, this is kind of his argument, that actually social media is the same thing, but with uh, morality and in many cases with truth. So uh, what, what do you do when you c- try to kind of come up with what is true about the world? Uh, you, you, you consider it, you give it a real think, maybe you, you dig into some uh, analytics, right? Um, I, I'm talking about you personally here, but like, what does a normal person do? Well, maybe they just like go on their phone and check Twitter. Um, and uh, Twitter can be used well, and it can be used uh, terribly. And, and a lot of people use it terribly. A lot of people surround themselves with just a further and further uh, in-group of people who who kind of repeat the same kind of uh, platitudes that repeat the same kind of most emotionally salient things and that this creates this kind of uh, this the, really this kind of like group this kind of like hyper object of a group of people forming to become something that acts much more like a kind of biological organism right that kind of acts like the, this this one thing that is moving in unison uh, i'll have to go back and listen because this is something that i've been meaning to write about for a while and um and 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 it is a topic that I I believe intuitively um, is real, and I see it, and um, and it's uh, you know let's just take like the um, AMC Entertainment, you know the Apes. Uh, oh yes, which we've written about and poke some fun, um, you know, and and the violence of the response that we get when we write about AMC is like literal violence, like written violence in the threat sense and things like that. Oh, I see. Is okay. is um. It's staggering, right? I mean, like it's a it's a freaking movie company. They 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 show movies in a theater. Um, why are you writing threatening emails um, to a green chicken who wrote a, a slightly critical story about your cult? Um, and it's amazing. <laughs> well, you right? have the it's, answer there, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so like a, it's a phenomenon that I think is, and it sounds like your prior guest um, has studied it. it. It it seems like it is accelerating and. Um, I don't know how that ends. So you ask me about the pol- the political, you know, there, there, there's there's a whole ecosystem of political beliefs and people who ascribe to them that on both sides that you and I are completely unaware of because it never makes our Twitter feed and we're not in the Facebook group chat or mm. the Discord chat or whatever. And um, the chaotic nature of that nonlinear system how it ultimately manifests itself is, is not knowable, but it, it can be disturbing. Like just because something is not specifically knowable doesn't mean it isn't generalizable and bad. Um, it's a wrong trend. Like we used to have proper debate, like you were like, you could debate somebody intellectually and they occasionally change their mind. Um, that's just becoming less and less feels like it's becoming less and less possible these days. Right. And, and that's kind of like language that's very appealing to me, but I'm just going to try to like break it down for the audience, right? So basically, when you have these kind of silos of ideas, this means two things. One, it means that you have a worse outlook of the world around you, which is bad on, enough on, by itself. But what's more is that you have these silos that are also separate from you. So you can't detect them. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what power is building. You don't know what's coming. You don't know the kind of political ferment that's going on in circles that you have hidden to you. Uh, and that this is this is this could possibly be quite scary. Yeah, absolutely. Like they'll all just show up in your front lawn someday, and you won't know why they're there. 
Yeah, and this uh, is kind of this is especially the case against censorship, right? Or one of the cases against censorship. You want to know what what your political opponents are saying. You want to know, even if they disagree with you, even if you'd rather uh, they they not believe that. That you want to know what's happening. You don't want a kind of low information environment where the changes are just sudden and drastic. Yeah, it, our sort of phrase, which we may have stolen from Grant Williams, I forget where we learned it, but um, is you know any view authentically held and politely expressed is at least worth worth listening to. Um, you know, it, and and those two factors, those two descriptors are important. Like it authentically held and politely expressed. Um, I don't need to listen to somebody who's yelling at me. Um, and I don't need to listen to somebody who is being deceptive. Um, but I'm a- I am interested in listening to somebody who is an expressing an authentically held view politely. Um, for example, we had a very polite disagreement about the impact of currency on the uh, uh, outsourcing of, of U.S. manufacturing. That's fine. Like I, I could, we could agree to disagree politely. We could express different viewpoints. Maybe one of us changes our mind slightly, and then we move on. Like that's that's the literal definition of civil discourse. Um, and we just have less and less of that today. And, and the, the outcome of that is not good. Um, history would show that whenever you have, um, you know, the censoring of somebody based on their composition of their team Jersey, for example, in the U S you know, politics, you know, as long as they're on your team, they can get away with a lot. Um, the, the outcome of that is one party will get in complete control and um, and then take it out on their enemies. And this is how you know, dictatorships happen. So. Right. And we should be very clear that there's a kind of pendulum effect as well, right? You don't know who wins the scramble in the very end. Well, all, when, the whole when you raise point the stakes, is, everyone yeah, raises right. the stakes. Whatever power you grab needs to be considered in the context of your worst political enemy having the same or worse power. Like this is this is why you have to be respectful of, of the institution. Like there's an erosion of the institutions in the country. And, and when you do such a thing, historically, at least the range of possible outcomes are less pleasant than the current circumstance. Yeah. I'd, I'd also want to get your, I'd also want to get your opinion on this as well. This is something that I think you have a deep insight to that. I haven't really seen you, uh, that I haven't really seen you write about all that much what are what is it like inside the institutions i know you kind of left them but like what is how how is how has corporate america changed for example in the past few decades yeah so i i would say um it's not really a statement about corporate america it's a statement about bureaucracies in general mm. and um bureaucracies exist to persist and to proliferate um, the old saying is that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program um, <laughs> is true. And it's as true in government, uh, well, I mean, not as true, but the, the same fundamental force of or nature exists in corporations that, that also exists in government, which is why there are some companies, you know, famously like, um, you know, like, uh, Gore-Tex, I think, you know, where they are, there's like a, a maximum number of people they will allow in any particular business unit, because once, it grows, <laughs> once it grows too big, um, things get, you know, bureaucracy takes over. And in fact, I mean, I, back to the origin story of Doomberg, um, we have a firm rule and we get asked by people whether they can 
intern for us or work for us or, you know, or are we hiring or um, we have a very firm rule, which is um, we outsource nothing. Mm. We do everything in house, everything in house from writing to editing, to photoshopping, to animating, to you, you, operating of the, t I personally, or, or one of our partners answers every single email and every comment and all that. And we do everything in house. Um, why is that? Um, well, one, um, it means we're pretty full, you know, uh, uh, on time, which is a forcing function for prioritization. Um, we can't waste our time if we're doing everything in house. In fact, one of our rules is if we have to hire a contractor to teach us how to do something or to do something we don't yet know how to do more specifically, then we pay them double to teach us how to do it so that we only have to engage them once. Um, mm, right. Um, that forcing function of prioritization, like we are an extremely lean team and we're extremely efficient with our time because we don't have time for bullshit. Um, and we're open and honest through our, our mindset of continuous improvement to call bullshit when it exists. Like that is a waste of time. And if you waste your time doing that, you're jeopardizing the business um, because we have limited resources and we're going to get the most out of those limited resources. Um, there might come a day where we outsource some things and build a team we can manage, uh, but that day is not today. Um, and that's the opposite of bureaucracy. So, I mean, the, when I was in the corporate world, I would spend an enormous amount of my time defending my budget. Um, it's a very useless exercise, of course. Um, politics, you know, like you could, you, there, there are many B2B companies in particular um, where you can climb very high in the corporation and never have met a customer. Um, and uh, I could write a whole book on corporate America and, and big corporations and multinationals in particular and how to climb them. Like it's a solved problem. I, it, it's, it's, you, there are yeah, growth. I think I've seen books like that. Yeah, I, there I know are people who do this kind of stuff. Yeah, there are growth hacks to, um, and there are and there are ethical ways to do it, but it's a sort of a solved problem in my mind, and so it's boring. Um, but yeah, like the bureaucracy, the primary objective of bureaucracy is to persist and proliferate, and um, and it begins to eat up the the innovative, you know, the the flexibility, the the. The innovation, you know, the the entrepreneurial spirit of the employees, and so then what you get out of a corporation is not the integral of the of the talent and work of the individual people that are embedded in it. And in fact, today, like they're 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 literally prisons. Like many of these <laughs> corporations have fences around them, and you have to badge to get in, um, and you have to badge to get out. Um, and, you know, every keystroke is monitored and every text is stored and um, it's literally a prison. And, and so um, it, I didn't want to be a good prisoner. Um, I wanted to create something and my, my team wanted to create something. Um, you know, the old expression that we have is we, we eat what we kill. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, like if Doomberg didn't you have succeed, let, you have to let the chicken out of the coop. Yeah. If the Doomberg didn't <laughs> succeed, you know, we, we would be have to do something else because how would we feed our families and how would we pay our bills? Um, hmm. That empowers you. It's scary. It's risky. Um, the comfort of a regular paycheck. In fact, all of society, by the way, is structured around forcing people to be employees of corporations. So I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the whole W2 phenomenon, um, but um, no, you, not at all. What, okay. what is W2? 
um, W-2 is a is a, basically a person that works at a corporation. You get a paycheck, and for taxes, they give you a W a form W-2, which oh I see okay categorizes your um, your your earnings and your deductions and your four hundred one k contributions and your healthcare and all that stuff. And, um, you can't get a mortgage unless you have a W-2. So as an entrepreneur, I, I, I'm I own the I'm a either an outright owner or a partial owner of the LLCs that you know that we have created to operate our businesses. Um, but we're not W2. I'm not a W2 employee. Um, and regardless of how much money my businesses make, I can't get a mortgage because of that. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Almost impossible. Um, why is that? Well, I'll have to think, a, I'll have to take a second look at a starting that consulting company then. <laughs> Even then you like, you better pay yourself as a W2. Like we are owner operator partners. So oh, we I see. Like we're not employees. Um, and so, um, the reason why you can't get a mortgage is because banks aren't really in the lending business they're in the flipping business and the fed buys mortgages originated you know using w2s as backing um, oh i see and so interesting like the whole there's uh, literally like I, if rate when rates were at their lowest you know if if i wanted to refinance my home and take some equity out i couldn't do it because i they won't even talk to you like it, and this is a very common thing like you could google around like oh my goodness um, can't get mortgages because no matter how much, like I, no matter how, what, how much, um, equity you're putting in and what the loan of value is and how much personal collateral you can pledge, um, they can't flip it to the Fed. And so they're not going to give you the loan. Um, these are all just sort of interesting little signposts that society would like us to be prisoners, <laughs> you know? And when I, again, like if you look at the security around many companies that came up, especially after say nine 11, and maybe it's just an artifact of the industries that we were working in um, because they're, you know, sensitive industries and, you know, to target rich environment for terrorists, for example. Um, right. They, they, put, they put up fences and, you know, it's all, you're, you're surveilled and you, you, you go in and you attend your meetings and you do your training and you get your job performance reviews and you, you know, do your HR policies and do your various trainings and none of it is productive work. Um, so there's a lot of busy people in corporate America, but there's not a lot of productive people. Yeah, it's all like busy work, right? Um, so there's this kind of idea in, in the kind of industrialization era, uh, I think articulated best by the, the, the sociologist Max Weber, uh, that that these bureaucracies would be become more and more rule based, and that this is actually this might have actually been a good thing. Uh, it might create alienation. It might, like you said, make people feel like prisoners. But at least it would be more efficient. Um, but that doesn't seem like the case. It seems like that actually they're less efficient, right? And you said you're not uh, tolerant of bullshit, basically, uh, and, and that uh, they're. And the implication is that they are tolerant of bullshit, right? And you you'd think that that's not very good for the company itself. So, like, why why in your in your judgment is this happening? Because as I told you, bureaucracies are solving for a different scorecard than the companies mm, they're embedded yes. in. Um, and so, just exactly. take your typical company. It has functions, right? To use the language of of the corporate world, um, HR might be a function. Um, Research and development would be a function. Manufacturing would be a function. Now, um, some corporations are organized predominantly by business units. And you, I could tell you the pros and the cons of every corporate model based on um, how autonomous the business units are or how strong the functions are and whether the who reports to who. So if, if this is, we were going into the weeds, but I, I'm happy to do it because I've spent decades in it. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm happy if, to listen. If if the R and D head of a business unit reports to the business general manager, that's radically different than if that R and D head reports to a functional leader. So mm. if you're a chief technology officer of a Fortune 100, let's say, um, if if none of the people in the business units report to you, that's a very different job than if everybody in the function reports to you across the company. And so that's like the first line of delineation that is necessary to understand the structural flaws in the design of the corporation, uh, because there are strengths and weaknesses to both models. But especially in companies where functions are strong, um, the function behaves as, a, as an entity embedded under the corporation that is optimizing for the function, often at times at the expense of the shareholders and in violation of their fiduciary. Um, and so just as an example, imagine you're in a human resources function at a large company and every HR manager in the company reports up to the chief human resources officer instead of reporting into the general manager of the business unit. Um, you might decide that it's not a quote good idea to outsource HR and many of the HR functions and tactics offshore because you, your friends work in HR and, and, and back to the discussion we had, like wall street might be pressing you to do that. And you won't do that because you're solving for, your bureaucracy now whether that ultimately as we talked about might be a better decision in the long run is besides the point um that decision is being made at the bureaucratic level and not at the at the uh, owner operator level um the principal agent problem basically um, rears its head in the power structures that get embedded within um, these corporations and even at if let's say everybody reports up to the general manager of a business unit that business unit might make decisions that are um, not necessarily optimized for the mothership and they might view corporate headquarters as the enemy um, and behave accordingly. Um, and um, they might, you know, decide that, you know, they only need to show 11% growth. And so they might delay some orders into next year to smooth things out because there's no need to, you know, uh, overachieve against my metric because I'm not going to get paid for it, um, et cetera. So those are the types of flaws in the design, but at the, the, the holistic level, um, the, the, multi, the, the, the issue with bureaucracies is they're solving for a different function. Right. And uh, I actually have a model of this. I'm not sure if you heard this while you were like kind of background researching or anything like that, but, uh, one sentence. Bureaucracy is the art of moving explicit hierarchies into implicit hierarchies, taking, uh, the, these like very obvious competitions, right? Are we going to get a rocket to Mars? Are we are we going to have this rocket go up and then land again, right? Uh, or is, is our government providing like the basic resources to people, right? Or is it operating efficiently? Is it operating well? Um, and turning that into something that is very implicit and convoluted, that basically is the ideal fertile ground for for useless social climbers, people who, who don't have much talent to kind of actually contribute, but have a lot of talent in manipulating these bureaucracies and in kind of climbing up them. Uh, and, and you see these kind of figures in all sorts of places. Uh, certainly my home, my homeland of politics is, uh, is uh, populated with very, very, very many of them. But that, yeah, that essentially what is happening in my view, my kind of like diagnosis, and of course this is oversimplified, but I think there's a lot of value in it, is that what actually creates value, which is this kind of explicit criticism, this kind of sharp uh, debate and uh, 
betting reckoning reckoning with uncomfortable truths is swept under the rug and is substituted by this kind of like persistence game. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. That's precisely what occurs. Um, and uh, again, the the metric that is optimized to you know the old expression is you you get what you inspect, not what you expect. Yes, right? exactly. And, um, and so, like for Doomberg, we have a magic metric that we manage to, and I won't you know necessarily talk about it here, but um, since we're a small team, a dynamic team, a responsive team, um, we understand across each of the five pillars what our key metrics are, and even within those, which are the true most important non-negotiables. Hmm. Um, and then that allows us to cut through any bureaucratic impulses that we might develop. Um, you know, we we joke. Um, we we have a magic metric, and um, the Bitcoin maxis, um, who I actually <laughs> quite like many of them, um, would appreciate this joke, but our expression around the chicken coop is um, show up, number go up and repeat. <laughs> um, so as every day, as long as that number is going up, um, then we are compounding value. Um, and so show up, you can't, you have to show up every day. Um, number go up is the objective. And then, and repeat is, is the, is, 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 is the trick of it all. And um, continuing to be motivated to create the value, capture the value, share the value with our friends and family. Um, is what's going to be the, the genesis of our success. Whereas in a bureaucracy, um, the social climbing aspect, making your boss look good, um, you know, um, there are genuine ways to float to the top in such circumstances. We tried, I certainly tried um, to behave in those ways when I was in that world. But the prospect of putting on a badge and going into a prison again is just unthinkable to me, having lived the other side of this life. Um, mm, coop life is not so, for you. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't, again, I'm doing the work of my life. And so yes. what a privilege, like I, I don't want to, even though we've talked about a lot of pessimistic things, um, I'm a very joyous, Certainly. very grateful, very happy person and thrilled to have found the work of my life. Um, and, and I don't begrudge for a second. Uh, I don't take it. I don't take lightly what a wonderful thing that is and how thrilled I am and our team is to have found it. And we, every day, you know, Jim Harbaugh is a coach of the Michigan Wolverines uh, has a saying, which I will um, make more sort of gender appropriate, which is he's going to attack each day with an enthusiasm unknown to humankind. Um, I get out of bed and get to do the work that I do. Um, and I'm, I'm extraordinarily and forever grateful for having that gift um, and having earned that gift um, through, through good hard work. So how do we inspire more people to take that path, right? Is, is this something that, like, why, why are more people doing this? Um, it's not for everybody, um, for one. Um, it's hard. Um, there are a lot of advantages to working at a large company, even though it's bureaucratic, and even though you waste a lot of time, there's the certainty of your salary, there's the, the time of the day where you have meetings, and then the time of the day where you don't. Um, you have good benefits, you can get a mortgage, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's, there are a lot of benefits. And so like, I don't want to sound like just because I left that world that somehow everything about that world is bad because it's not true. Um, we've organized ourselves in this way for many reasons. Some of them are good. Um, you know, access to capital markets and operating things at scale require functions. And, um, you know, we couldn't, I couldn't run a nuclear power plant with a small team. Um, <laughs> and so, and nuclear power plants should be run. And so like, 
it, it's important. Um, and for many people, it it satisfies their basic needs and they live very happy lives and they go on their biannual vacations and they, they're members of their country club and their kids go to good colleges and they live happy lives and they retire and, um, and they've lived a good, honorable, decent life. And, and for many people, that's the objective, that that's an incredible privilege on the global scale, of course, um, to, to people listening in parts of the world for whom such optionality is not possible. It sounds like we're speaking a foreign language. Um, right. And so I, you have to be mindful of, of just how lucky and privileged you are. Um, so we, I would say that for those who want to, um, and we're considering actually writing a book, um, we've been approached um, and have some options in that regard. Um, Ooh. The, there is a, there is a, there is a, a, a the sort of not, it won't be the title, but one of the working possible titles for the book goes along the lines of, um, you know, I, subtitle at least would be a recipe for content creators or for you know creating your own business um, here is sort of a systematic way to have effort be the only input into the equation and then if you're willing to work your tail off here's a pretty sound navigation plan to get from where you are to where you want to go um, and there are many such books and 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 i don't know that we would have anything specifically differentiating enough to justify one um, but i would say that um, the first the most important piece of advice that I would give anybody is that um, there, are, there are no gimmicks, right? And so you, the first thing you need to do is to be able to work extraordinarily hard on something. And then the second thing I would say is um, it is impossible to work as hard as you need to on something that you're not passionate about. Hmm. Um, and so um, if you do happen to find your passion um, and you are willing to, as Vince Lombardi would say, find out what the price is and pay it, um, then there is a systematic way to de-risk the effort, which is the, the sort of five pillars plan that we opened this discussion with that we have obsessed over, executed on, and tried to continuously improve from the beginning. Right. Do you want to, do you want to drop some, uh, do you want to drop some, uh, breaking news on, uh, on, on that book front on that kind oh, of, yeah. uh, we on, have nothing, on what do you want to add? Yeah, we have nothing, nothing formalized yet it's a concept uh, we're very very busy with launch um that's sort of um right makes that'll, sense that'll come later once we have um once our growth has slowed and we have a stabilized um subscriber base that is consistent with what our goals are um and that uh, you know we're in the, the the phase of the business where you're sort of beating back churn uh, instead of growing and um you have time to experiment in um uh, other areas um, that you can sort of create in, in this world. Um, and so there's no plans in the short term um, for sure. And we're not even sure that we would write one. Um, books are kind of hard to do and, and oftentimes can be sort of negative MPV projects when you measure for, you know, when you take account uh, of your effort and the opportunity cost of what you could be doing. Yeah. Uh, we have gone quite a while without mentioning uh, without mentioning oil and without mentioning energy. Uh, so there's actually still a lot of stuff that I want to ask you on that front. We talked about ESG a bit earlier, and I think ESG is actually one of the questions of like, basically, how, how hard can a market be distorted? 
Uh, and I basically want to ask you that question, right? There, there are these debates economists have over market efficiency. How long do they take to correct? Uh, how far or how far off can they be? And I think like really how the question of ESG is basically like how hard can they be manipulated? Uh, so like, what do you think? Uh, what do you think the kind of true value of uh, the, these kind of uh, ESG funds are? I think we would both agree that they're, they're obviously overestimates, but like, how how much are they overestimates and uh, what is actually happening here? Um, so, I mean, there's sort of a deeper question embedded there, which is the how far can you stretch the rubber band before it snaps back? Um, mm, yes, yes. And um, in particular, the energy sector is asset intense with long lead times and um, price doesn't always induce more supply now because of the... ESG really? fund, fundamentally attacking. Well, how can you? Like, if you can't get a pipeline approved in five years, what does the price of natural gas mean hmm. for whether or not you're going to accelerate, quote unquote, that pipeline? You're not. You're not on the critical path. Um, right. There's you know, there's no actual control there. Correct. We're very big on identifying and micromanaging the critical path for any particular goal or sub project that we might be working on. Um, and so, when the critical path is outside of your control, price is irrelevant to your action. You might. You know, if you're not working on the critical path, then then you're not going to change the time. This is the first energy crisis that we're in, where politicians are simultaneously attacking supply in the middle of the crisis. Um, Boris Johnson is putting that a, is that the case? Find we, we've me never another. Been in a case we we've never been in another case where we've had a kind of shortage of something and people are attacking the kind of supply. That seems. I don't in know. Energy, that that, that seems like the type of energy? political mistake that's happened through history, but I can't uh, name an example off my head either. And you won't be able to name one in energy. Um, in energy, okay. Yeah, because energy is a core, you know, energy is life, as we coined that phrase. Um, and so, yeah, this is the first time in the history of humanity <laughs> where, huh. where a society is so wealthy and so ignorant that it thinks it can, as we say, let me read you the opening line of... of Grim Diesel, because oh yes, when I, I like when this I, one. When I have time to write it, it's better than when I'm thinking on my feet, you know. But um, so here's what I say in the opening paragraph of Grim Diesel, published on May 23rd: um, Our political class, a collection of people who have benefited the most from and yet know the least about the hard work that goes on in the space, i.e., energy, continues to do its level best to impede and reverse the development of our domestic energy bounty. And here's the killer line naively assuming they could jackhammer away at the foundation of the tower they sit atop and somehow be immune from the consequences of its collapse. Um, Mm. It is literally insane what we are doing to ourselves under the auspices of uh, saving the planet, quote unquote. And um, the picture that we show in this piece underneath that turn of phrase is none other than um, John Kerry and in the caption, which many people would not have read because uh, it's you know smaller text, we we, we jokingly <laughs> say John Kerry, noted scientist. Um, <laughs> John Kerry is an idiot, um, and John Kerry should be nowhere near the policymaking in a field as important as energy. Um, and yet here we are, and so we will all suffer the consequences of his idiocy. Um, and that's just the first time in history, in the middle of an energy crisis where a society is proactively attacking supply and um, the dies cast. 
this um this does uh live up to your namesake it does give me a <laughs> profound sense of doom um, uh, you know nobody comes to us for the optimistic outlook it is called doomberg i mean so <laughs> it's uh, yeah but yeah is there is there any kind of forcing function here is there any kind of thing that they're yeah. responsive to Politi- political revolution yeah um <laughs> well yeah i mean that's literally um either through the ballot box or through violence um we have an expression which is on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. Um, mm-hmm. And we have not yet experienced food riots here, but we are starting to see them break out in in various countries. Like Sri, Sri Lanka was not what you would consider to be a poor country. It was sort of, you know, middle income type. It was a pretty well-developed middle income country. Uh, You're developing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it climbed its way up. It's, yeah, not anymore. Um, it took one season, yeah. Um, and so there you go. Um, and so, yeah, it, 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 how far the ban can be stretched before it snaps back um, is an experiment we seem determined to run. And I, I think a very big problem here is that there, there's a kind of asymmetric. The, the people who are first hurt by this kind of growing instability are not the kind of people who are causing it, right? Of course, yes. Yeah. In fact, the, the, the ones causing it are the last ones to be hurt by it. Yeah. Precisely. They wouldn't be doing it if they were the immediate um, <laughs> victims of their own policies. Um, you know, like the old joke was that um, the U.S., I think Putin may have said it or somebody said it, but like, the U.S. is willing to fight Putin down to the last European. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's the same here. Like John Kerry is not going to give up his private jet, um, uh, you know, or his various mansions. Um because, you know, is what it is. I mean, I don't want to sound too populist, but um, it would be great if the people in charge of these decisions were the first to feel the consequences of it, um, which is what a representative democracy is actually supposed to do. But we've, because nobody wants to run for office anymore and we distill psychopathy in that industry, um, we're left with the John Kerry's of the world. I don't think you can really go without blaming at least some of the voters, though, because because here's the thing, right? We talk about it. I think there's a good case to say, especially now that energy is the number one issue, right? Energy is is neither the number one issue in uh, voters' minds, or you can say it's not the number one issue in the media. Um, and both of these are huge problems, right? Um it, it's not close, right? Like now they're having this kind of like gun freak out. Uh, over real what is just like it's, it's an anecdote it's a local news story it's nowhere near as significant as the kind of stuff we've been talking about this entire show right and you you see the same thing over and over again with these kind of individual cases you see it on the left and the right on the right it's more like terrorism or it's like vaccine side effects it's the same deal it's these kind of anecdotes that get blown up into some kind of uh crazy thing on on the left it's like either either shootings either police killings so on and so forth and it's just kind of like this it's it's this show uh, it's a show and it's a show that a lot of voters are tuning into that a lot of voters, right? Like a lot of people vote on the culture war. And uh, I think that's a very big contributor as to why like, pe- why like people aren't more responsive to, or like politicians aren't more responsive to these kind of things that actually do matter a lot, like, like uh, energy policy. Yeah. Well, you've answered your own question. Like I would say that um, I, I hesitate to blame the voters because they are subject to um, a deluge of propaganda. Um, the same social media companies that control their feeds and hoard them, you know, herd them into pockets of cultish like 
conclaves. Um, yeah, I mean, but so, like, there was some point where we were we were yes, only paying attention there to that and to that as well, right? And we kind sure. of we kind of realized, right? You don't need. I don't think you need to be kind of like that that sophisticated of a thinker to to just say like, oh, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I should not be emotional. I should not be emotional over this. this is like clear manipulation, right? I should kind of step back and actually like pause and think. Um, and I do think there is some blame there, right? Because like. Quite, quite frankly this is like propaganda is really lame it's like not it's, it's not very good yeah it's, it's like very it's low easy. quality uh, yeah it's easy for those trained in the art of it to identify it probably easier than the average person you know the average person hmm. doesn't spend that much time thinking about it they're not hosting a podcast or yeah guest on podcast you know like they they live their lives they just want to be happy and have their children do better than they've done um and so I would not, um, you know, Grant Williams had a great piece on propaganda earlier this year in his newsletter and, um, it's behind the paywall, but at grant-williams.com, but, um, very, very good. It's a very, very powerful force, man. Like it's, 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 and I, of course we're both victims of propaganda all the time. Like, and, and so I'm not That's fair. proclaiming that somehow we're immune because we're this, you know, chiseled, uh, intellects that, um, stand above the fray. We are victims to, to propaganda just as much as anybody else but i think it i would not blame the voters necessarily it, it's it's very very difficult to cut through the noise um, i mean i say that because there is a kind of gradation here right there there is really just falling for the most obvious kind of sure like it's it's transparently anecdotal it's transparently a kind of distraction uh what's going on especially with the the kind of culture war stuff or this kind of shooting stuff now it's it's like not it's it's not well hidden at all and you can say okay that's that's because you have a uh, understanding of how propaganda works but really like if you have th- this is nothing better than the kind of rag level gossip that um i mean i guess this was popular in 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 the day as well in kind of like a few centuries ago but like th- this is what is happening this is this is what has filled the yeah. coverage of the new york times yeah. this is what has filled the coverage of uh every cable channel whether in the u.s or canada and i'm sure in many other countries as well um and it's it's even more absurd in canada because of course this is something that happened in a completely different country although i would say it's absurd in the u.s unless you're in like that same county as well because it really should not matter to you whatsoever it's this kind of like marginal thing that kills fewer people than like one was it either like one uh one thousandth or one ten thousandth of of the number of heart attacks Right. And, and people are having these kind of neurotic freakouts that create bureaucracies that create for uh, that create a further preference towards these kind of implicit hierarchies instead of explicit co- competition. Th- this kind of like embedded neuroticism in all of these institutions. That was the end result of that. It's, it's stifling innovation. It's creating stuff like the like the FDA, which primary function is to delay uh, what I think are, are wonderful innovations and in drugs like the coronavirus vaccine and causing hundreds of thousands of deaths as a consequence. Um, so I really do see this as a kind of like, it is a kind of like self-regulation test, right? It's, it's like looking at the kind of emotionally triggering thing and saying like, okay, I'm not going to be emotionally triggered by this. And I actually think I have an article that I'm going to put out sooner that I've already put out at this point um, that, that kind of makes this as a kind of moral or philosophical case, right? I just don't think that, I don't think that right now, okay, I'm sorry, this is kind of bad communication, but I, I really do care about this, that there, there's a kind of moral inversion, I, I think, in the valorization of impulsiveness, 
And I think that this is actually deeply connected to how our bureaucracy works because our bureaucracy is kind of short-termist. It's kind of like office politics. It's kind of like whatever you can do to manipulate the people in front of you. And that means this kind of like, this kind of really like performative emotionality. And what's strange about the performative emotionality is that it's kind of vice signaling. It's signaling your emotional weakness. It's signaling your kind of really your, your lack of self-control and your incompetence. And, uh, and this is valorized. And this is just something that is like literally the opposite of anything functional to me. And maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't blame uh, the voters or we shouldn't blame the individual people involved. We should blame the system. Uh, but but I'm, I'm kind of like not on that mindset. I, I think that if you engage in these kind of behaviors, if you kind of like, if you kind of, of lack, if you kind of let that emotionality take over you, right, you are at least a little bit, uh, you're at least a little bit on the hook. Yeah. So I, couple of things I would take issue with. Um, I do think that, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm sense, always this, like very self-skeptical yeah, when I make these the, cases. So yeah, go the, ahead. The sensualization of news is certainly real, although I would separate mass shootings as a separate category. Um, they're a serious issue and there's serious debate to be had on what can and should be done um, pro and con to those events. And so I wouldn't downplay the... Um, Enormity of the tragedy, for example, that has transpired in Texas. Um, and there's an old expression in the public relations world, which sort of captures the essence of, of, of the challenge facing such professionals as they try to obfuscate away a crisis or, you know, um, respond. Crisis management is an interesting science, but the old expression is um, uh, hazard equals risk times outrage. Mm. <laughs> um, and so... Um, you know, um, back to the whole proximity effect of empathy that we referenced earlier. Um, the, the, you know, like in one of the old, another expression is there's nothing more outrageous than puppies and babies. Right. And so, um, right. and so when you see, especially a school shooting, um, you know, where there's young children involved, this strikes deeply visceral, uh, uh, protection mechanism that is sort of hardwired into the reptilian part of our brains. Um, and so uh, that's a completely separate and I think standalone issue that I wouldn't lump into the other examples that you, you articulated. Um, but that concept of hazard equals risk times outrage is, is, is well known in the public relations community. And there's just certain, mm. you know, um, certain less outrageous, you know, to the populace um, events that you can get away with and you can take more risk on because the hazard is lower because there's less outrage. Um, you know, I, I joked in one of our pieces, or maybe I didn't, and I maybe didn't survive editing, but um, the media has a, a bias against oil, for example. And um, so that's why discoveries are quoted in barrels and oil spills are reported in gallons because there's, oh, yes. there's 42 gallons in a barrel. And so it's a bigger number. Um, I think I did write that at one point. So yeah, I yeah, mean, it's, it's a complex topic. Probably, probably don't have the time to get into it at the level that it would deserve here, but um, yeah. Yeah. This kind of obfuscation I think is incredibly common. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you, you talk about this in, in the kind of PR aspect because this is kind of similar to the kind of market efficiency thing. What do you think is the effectiveness of the PR field? Like how, how good are, on average, how good is the average company's like PR, PR outlet at what they do? 
depends on the size of the bureaucracy behind it. You know, <laughs> fair uh, enough, fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I, on I, average, yeah, yeah, I'd say um, there's nothing in in a society where information is so valuable and perception of your brand is so critical that um, you know public relations it can can be can be the most critical thing that a company does, you know, back to the whole definition of brand that we started with, which is the gut feeling you induce in your ideal clients as they interact with your product. Um, if, if, if a company that you have come to trust and procure for their products um, is discovered to have been a, a serial polluter and um, abuser of labor in foreign countries, that affects the brand, right? And so mm -hmm. um, to the extent that that should be obfuscated, of course, it shouldn't be, but it, it, it happens. And, and, such professionals um, for a price are willing to do that. And so. Yeah, I think. Uh, wait, I don't know. Wait, I, I still I want to get like a clear answer to this because, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put the motivation. I'll make the motivation behind what I'm thinking about more clear is that my my kind of understanding is that many of these PR companies, they, they're kind of not very good at their jobs. When oh, they kind sure. of respond yeah. to, especially the kind of political aspect, right? When there's kind of these political outrage mobs, right? Uh, I think that they're actually not very good at containing this. And that uh, what sure. is usually more effective is actually just saying that this is political and this is outrageous and that this is um, the representation of an extreme fringe, uh, which almost always it is, right? So so saying that truthfully, right? Telling the truth, uh, I think that it actually like works works better in many cases. And you saw this with kind of, uh, I think Trader Joe's did this, uh, some other companies did this, and uh, it actually turned out quite well for them. Uh, so I actually think that there's kind of a, there's kind of a, at least in the political sense, which is kind of the the land that I'm more familiar with, the, the, there's a there's a deep flaw in the entire industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree that um, many public affairs functions within companies are incompetent, and or many of the <laughs> firms that charge a lot of money for such services don't do very well, in particular at crisis management. Yeah, um, mm. I, I wasn't making the case that. I was more commenting on the need for them and how effective they could be when done well, as opposed I to see. A, gen a generalized appraisal of the median public affairs professional. So I think we're running a little bit low on time. So I'll give you the last question of the show. What is something in the world, hopefully something that we haven't talked about yet, that has too much chaos and needs more order, or that has too much order and needs more chaos? Mm, so I would say um, the question I I think a lot about and sort of tied back to what we were just talking about, which is public affairs, is um, how does one go about rebranding something that the public has radically misunderstood um, for a good cause, right? And so I think about this a lot vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear energy industry. Um, there is no path to decarbonization that doesn't go through nuclear. And yet there is no industry that has produced more life nourishing power more safely with less harm to the environment than the nuclear industry. And yet that industry is the most maligned, least appreciated, least well understood industry in the world. And um, so there's chaos in the 
belief systems of the average person vis-a-vis nuclear energy, and it would be great if we could order those beliefs to a proper grounding in physics um, and just to show people what's possible. So, for example, in, just in the state of Michigan, you know, they shut down a nuclear power plant, and now there's warnings of rolling blackouts this summer. Um, those two things are connected. Hmm. Um, and and so um, back to the question of public affairs and effectiveness and and the real deep problem that I would love to solve is how do you take a deeply embedded fear system back to our discussion around sensualized, you know, sensualized, sensationalized news and, and hazard equals risk times outrage. Um, like nobody died from Three Mile Island. Um, people, you know, there's a, a train derailment yesterday of oil. Um, it's leaking into uh, a river. And um, the, like Three Mile Island was so blown out of proportion um, and created so much fear and so much sensationalist news coverage around the event that um, that it has really put humanity back, a giant step back, uh, and put the environment back. And, um, and I don't know whether it's solvable. Like, it's not like you just rebrand it. Um, and so that's a question I give a lot of thought to. And, and, and if you ask me what area would have the biggest impact on the most amount of people, um, in the nearest term possible, it would be a rebranding of, of the, if nuclear power was invented today, it would be heralded as a, a, a humanity saving invention. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think Josh Wolf has the idea of calling yes, it elemental exactly. power. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my answer to your final question. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. I really, it was a good time. Yeah. And, um, Make sure everybody sends up to Doomberg at Substack.com and follows us on Twitter at DoombergT. That was our interview with Doomberg. As always, if you like the show, subscribe, share, and also check out the links. We always have links down below, and we have a especially high number this time because of Doomberg's amazing writing. Also, this is the episode right before the season finale of From the New World. It's a great episode lasting four hours, almost, with a very, very interesting guest who challenges the fundamental frame of the show. It was great for me to go through, great for me to listen to again, and, I hope, incredibly interesting for you as well. Certainly there will be topics that uh, you'll find very, very interesting. After that is an episode with the best highlights of the show, the main ideas to move forward in, and where the show will be going from there. And then we'll be back right again with another amazing interview to kick off Season 2. In order to get all of that, you'll just need to subscribe for completely free, no charge whatsoever, and you'll get another amazing episode next week.